Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. CNN has finally been called out for its televising of the Trump town hall, called out by an active CNN broadcast journalist, and not just by any active CNN broadcast journalist, but by one of the seminal figures in the entire history of the network and called out by her not just in public, but during the commencement address at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. CNN chief international correspondent Christiane Amanpour, the first on-air person at CNN to say what so many evidently feel as sharply now as they did when the Trump fiasco was still live on CNN's air. She used the terms of the diplomats she has often covered, and she maintained the tone of respect and politeness that has defined her since that day I first met her in the 1990s. And then for 25 minutes, she diplomatically and respectfully and politely blew Chris Licht to hell. And the decision to prostitute the network for the sake of the ephemeral Trump ratings with him, often by merely repeating what journalism is supposed to do and never having to say that last week Chris Licht and CNN 
did nothing of the kind. Especially to speak truth to power, to hold the powerful accountable is not just a slogan, it is vital. And when we do it well, it makes a huge difference. And when we don't, it makes an equal but opposite difference. I was advised early on to find my voice. And once I figured out what that meant, I did. And for better or for worse, I've always opted to speak out when staying silent might have been easier. So right now, in this moment, for me personally, I want to do what's right and empathize with and acknowledge all those who need to trust us at CNN, the most trusted name in news. I understand that the town hall a week ago was for many an earthquake. And indeed, because I'm a reporter, before I came here today, I'd come from London, I met with CNN CEO Chris Licht at our New York headquarters, and he said the same thing, that it was an earthquake, but for slightly different reasons, and I'll go into them. I wanted to hear from him firsthand what he'd been thinking. We had a very robust exchange of views. Oh, I bet. Christiana Manfour emphasized two critiques of the town hall, the presence of the live, uncontrolled, uncontrollable audience, and another issue, the presence of the live, uncontrolled, uncontrollable Trump. I still respectfully disagree with allowing Donald Trump to appear in that particular format. We're all grown-ups, of course. And we can hold differing opinions without a great big blow-up. We know Trump and his tendencies. Everyone does. He just seizes the stage and dominates. No matter how much flack the moderator tries to aim at the incoming, it doesn't often work. For me, I would have dropped the mic at nasty person. But then that's me. I've been in the ring for a long time with many of these people. And with that aside, Caitlin Collins disappeared in a quick puff of smoke. And when Christiane Amanpour compared what CNN and Licht and almost everybody else in American journalism had been doing to how the media of 70 years ago initially tried to cover the infamous Senator Joe McCarthy and thus let him run rampant across our landscape unchecked for four years, Licht's and CNN's arguments for putting Trump on live also disappeared in a quick puff of smoke. Your own Columbia Journalism Review a few weeks ago addressed precisely this issue, concluding that the American press and maybe the world's press still hasn't learned how to deal with or cover Donald Trump. Maybe we should revert back to the newspaper editors and TV chiefs of the 1950s who in the end refused to allow McCarthyism onto their pages unless his foul lies, his witch hunts, and his rants reached the basic evidence level required in a court of law. His influence gradually decreased with all but his fervent cliques and cults. So maybe less is more, maybe live is not always right. And then, never saying the words, Christiana Manpour did what Chris Licht and Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper and Caitlin Collins and a hat full of unnamed CNN spokespeople never had the simple courage nor the simple decency to do after the Trump fiasco. She apologized on behalf of her beloved network. Today, I can only hope that your trust in us might have been shaken, but not shattered. That you believe we can survive and rebuild that trust. 
and that most importantly, you will continue to see and know that we are still the only network that brings you the world. I also want you to, to digest this. It is my mantra, and I've learned it through bitter experience in the field. Be truthful, but not neutral. Both siderism, on the one hand, on the other hand, is not always objectivity. It does not get you to the truth. Drawing false moral or factual equivalents is neither objective or truthful. Objectivity is our golden rule, and it is in weighing all the sides and all the evidence, hearing everyone, reporting everything, but not rushing to equate them when there is no equating. Memorial services for Chris Licht's professional reputation and any possible defense of the Trump town hall will be held next week. Ms. Amanpour will not be invited to speak. In a bit of meta-reporting, however, CNN's Oliver Darcy, previously the only CNN employee of any kind to express even the mildest criticism of the town hall on the record, reported that Licht knew in advance that Amanpour was to speak at Columbia and that he even emailed the entire CNN family of 4,000 employees worldwide that they should watch the feed from the J School because it was a, quote, rare and exceptional honor. I guess that's the only thing he could have done. See, if he messed with her, or if he messes with her now, he will have a walkout on his hands. And I know Christiane Amanpour for about 25 years, and we are professional friends. And frankly, I think that she pulled punches in her speech, and obviously in her meeting with Licht, at least as she described it. She is polite, and sincerely polite, and old-fashioned formal, as you heard. And on the other hand, I have always believed, and she has always smiled when I have told her this, that she could disappear people. If Licht vanishes tomorrow without leaving a clue and somebody says, Keith, what do you think happened to him? I would simply mumble, Christiane, I'm poor, probably. And still, with foreknowledge, CNN managed to screw this all up. Amanpour's address to the Columbia J School graduation ceremony, and remember, this is something akin to a baseball player's speech upon being inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. That address occurred at almost the exact hour that Chris Licht rewarded the hapless Caitlin Collins, who did not drop the mic at nasty person, for selling out whatever principles a former George Soros conspiracy theorist for Tucker Carlson's Daily Caller could possibly have, and being the punching bag on CNN for Trump, rewarding Caitlin Collins by giving her her own 9 p.m. show, with weeks and weeks of anchoring experience on her resume. The Amanpour remarks, as they spread today and in the days and weeks and probably years to come, will subsume the Collins show, which they're not saying they've named, but which I assume will be called, Well, At Least She Tried with Caitlin Collins. CNN executives speaking off the record, I think to the New York Times and others, said that no, they had not even gotten around to figuring out what kind of show Collins would do. The show premieres next month in primetime even as she is being trashed on the left and misogynistically and crudely mocked on the right. Maybe it can be televised live from the Anderson Cooper's career memorial broadcast silo. But Chris Licht always has a plan. CNN executives, again, speaking off the record, that means licked. CNN executives speaking off the record think that maybe what they could do with her show is, are you ready? Cover 
one or two of the top news stories every night, right? Genius, a news show on cable news network. Only, only we'll do news in it. Wait, we're already putting news in CNN news shows? Damn! I would point out here that Licht has also done the following strategy, which is either 37th dimensional chess or it's plain old. When we worked together at MSNBC, we used to think he ate paste stupidity. Upon arrival at CNN a year ago, he had an okay morning show and an okay primetime without a 9 p.m. host because the guy had just gotten fired. Soon after his arrival, he moved his 10 p.m. host, Don Lemon, from that hour to the morning show to shore up mornings. Now... He is moving his morning host, Collins, from the mornings to 9 p.m. to shore up primetime. Maybe before year's end, he can complete this by moving Collins back to mornings to shore up the mornings again. Or by doing what he wound up doing to Lemon when Lemon could not function in the mornings, as everybody told him Lemon could not function in the mornings, a firing. Speaking of which, so, sure looks like I'm not the only one who dumped Laura Ingram. Matt Drudge reporting yesterday that Fox is moving Sean Hannity into Tucker Carlson's old 8 p.m. slot, which is actually an adroit move that may not stop the bleeding over there, but will probably staunch it. But Drudge, without spelling it out, says that Jesse Waters and the spectacularly overconfident Greg Gutfeld will be getting new primetime shows, and all that would be left if Hannity is moving to 8 would be 9 and 10, and if one of them is on at 10, it means Ingram just lost her primetime 10 p.m. program, didn't she? Lots of people jumped on this by saying this meant Laura Ingram had been fired by Fox, and Fox jumped right back, stridently saying she was the highest-rated woman in cable and she hadn't been fired, and also stridently avoiding saying anything like what time her show would be on going forward, or if we'd just see her, like, for 15 seconds at a time between commercials. Fox also made the claim that the firing presumption was being spread by left-wing activists which is the first time anybody's called Matt Drudge a left-wing activist. I'll remind you from the, yes, I dated Laura Ingram 25 years ago, and I have the scars to prove it, that on our first of two dates, Laura explained to me how the not very vast right-wing conspiracy worked and how it included her brother and his friend Matt Drudge. I don't know if that's the footprint of information movement here, but it's funny. It was Drudge who first reported Tucker Carlson getting the Fox 8 p.m. show and Megyn Kelly, if you remember who the hell she was, getting the 9 p.m. slot. And in fact, Drudge once hosted a show himself on Fox, but insisted on wearing his hat during it. And the only thing anybody remembers from it is the hat. From what I was able to see and hear, neither Hannity nor Ingram said anything in their broadcasts last night about reassignments. Still... Big day over here in Keithland. My God, Tucker Carlson and probably Laura Ingram are gone from Fox in a little over three weeks. And Chris got his licked kicked by Christian Amanpour at Columbia J School. And whereas there is much to discuss about the debt limit and the 14th Amendment and why the man I would nominate for president right now is Representative Jamal Bowman, I'll get to that in a moment, but for now... Excuse me while I kiss the sky. Ride on.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play this is countdown with keith olbermann postscripts to the news some insights some snarks some predictions and the lesson for today is throw the first punch you know who throws the first punch Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman, who represents my hometown, and I am damn proud of it and damn proud of him. Democrat Robert Garcia filed a privilege motion to expel George Santos and all of the other people living in his body from Congress. The privilege motion must be voted on within two days. Republicans then vote to refer that motion to the Ethics Committee, which allows them both to bury the motion for months while still pretending that they are standing up against Santos's bottomless pit of con jobs. Well, at dusk yesterday, George Santos is standing there on the steps of the House talking to gullible, easy mark reporters, exercising his one and only skill, making it up as he goes along. And who appears but Congressman Jamal Bowman? 
You will recognize him. He used to be a school principal. They did not have a PA system at his school. His voice thus sounds like a first punch. I can't, I can't continue to address you guys because there's a deranged member here, so I'm going to walk, all right? You guys I do deserve great. another term in Wait, it gets better. Who now enters stage right? Marjorie Taylor, Barney Rubble, Karen Green. Barney's hanging by a thread. The party's hanging. The party's hanging by a thread. You gotta save Barney. Listen, no more QAnon. No more MAGA. No more dead ceiling nonsense. Come on now. Save the party. Save America. Save the children. Do something about guns. Come on. Invest in education. The border is the border is what Trump left. What are you talking about? We're accepting them. We love them. We love the migrant children. We lost them. You can't find them. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah, migrant children. No, no, we don't know the news. I don't know. That's Fox News. That's Fox News. Listen, I need you to save the party. Save the party. Save the party. Also, save the liver. Jamal Bowman knows how to make a scene, knows how to mock the easily mocked, is not afraid to do any of that. Bless him. Clone him. There are some exceptions to this, but generally speaking, this is the way it has been in our country for two decades or more. Nearly the entirety of the moral force of the nation, nearly the entirety of responsible governance in the nation, nearly the entirety of law and legality and justice, all of that has belonged to the Democrats. But all of the political courage and skill, all of that has belonged to the Republicans and the fascists. And you know how that changes? You know how Democrats stop losing despite having moral force, responsible governance, law, legality, and justice? By Jamal Bowmaning this, by throwing the damn first punch. To that end, quote, Republicans have made it clear that they are prepared to hold our entire economy hostage unless you accede to their demands to reduce the deficit on the backs of working families. That is simply unacceptable, writes a group of Democratic senators, including Ed Markey, Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders to President Biden. We write to urgently request that you prepare to exercise your authority under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Using this authority would allow the United States to continue to pay its bills on time without delay, preventing a global economic catastrophe. The 14th Amendment. We have discussed this before, particularly that part about the validity of the public debt authorized by law shall not be questioned. And what Biden should do is schedule a news briefing or a short speech and say simply the Constitution of the United States obligates me, 
under the 14th Amendment to pay the debts incurred by the previous Trump administration, and I will do so. There will be no default. There will be no Republican cuts to services or anything else to benefit the rich and the corporations and the Trumps. The debts will be paid regardless of what the House does, and I do not negotiate with terrorists. There will be no further negotiations with Republicans until they raised the debt ceiling. Thank you. That's it. Tell the country who's at fault. Tell them how you are going to stop those who are at fault. Tell them why. For once, for once, let the lead Democrat in this country throw the first punch. What would the Republicans do in the mirror image of this situation? They would throw the first goddamned punch. They would tell the public what they were going to do. They'd do it. They'd proclaim themselves righteous and good and God-driven, and they would blame the other party, dare the other party to do something about it. Always make sure the other party looks like the guilty party. Throw the first punch. Does the 14th Amendment constitutionally obligate the president to pay national debts? I don't know. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I took one law class as a junior at Cornell. But act like it does. Act like it does until Kevin McCarthy proves he is really stupid enough, not just to posture and threaten about the debt ceiling, but to actually go into a court with the expressed, obvious desire to get a judge to rule that, sorry, the world economy has to crash. Go ahead, Kev. Explain that to your corporate masters. Go ahead, Kev. Find a judge who wants to push the button and launch the economic nukes against every man, woman, and child in the country. Mr. President, throw the first punch. You know who else threw the first punch yesterday? The National Archives, the proud, the few, the brave, the librarians. The archivists might be the ones who put Trump in jail and they just threw another first punch against him. The archives warned Trump by letter that it will now hand over to Jack Smith 16 records which show that Trump knew damned well that he couldn't just declassify documents by snapping his fingers. His primary line of defense, especially after he boasted on that Nuremberg rally on CNN last week that he deliberately took classified records, his primary defense has been that a president can just, I don't know, blink three times and then a classified document is a not classified anymore document. The 16 records in question, the archives has written Trump, all reflect communications involving close presidential advisors, some of them directed to you personally, concerning whether, why, and how you should declassify certain classified records. In other words, those 16 documents provide that thing all prosecutors love, and we're beginning to see that Jack Smith especially loves, guilty foreknowledge. They told Trump he didn't have carte blanche to declassify. He and his aides clearly responded, message understood. Then he stole the records. Then he claimed he could declassify them as if he never knew any differently. Oh, sorry, here are 16 documents proving you did damn well too no differently. Throw the first punch. And you know who else threw a first punch at Trump? The office of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Trump's main skill in life is to use the bureaucracy to wear and slow the bureaucracy down. He gets indicted. He gets arrested. He stalls. 
He and his lawyers complained that the DA was not specific about the alleged crimes and the specific laws he is supposed to have broken. And then the right-wing echo chamber shouts, it doesn't even say which law he's broken. Guess who just sent him a list of the laws he's broken? First, the agreement to unlawfully suppress negative stories about defendant before an election in order to influence the outcome of the election. That breaks New York Election Law 17-152 and Federal Election Campaign Act 52 U.S.C. 30101. Second, multiple false statements in the business records of different entities to advance that agreement. That breaks New York tax law 1801-A-3. Third, disguising reimbursement payments by doubling them and falsely characterizing them as income for tax reasons. That breaks the same state tax law. And fourth, multiple admissions of specific crimes by participants, including by guilty pleas to felonies, breaking New York state penal law 175.05. Will there be anything else, Mr. Trump? Do you need a receipt for having had your head handed to you? And one more first punch thrown. Ron Wyden. God love Ron Wyden. While Dick Durbin is sitting there wondering if he can get Diane Feinstein, an assistant, to help her figure out where she's been the last three months, California or Washington, Senator Ron Wyden just threatened to subpoena Harlan Crow's ass. Wyden, in his role as the Senate Finance Committee chair, was the one who wrote Crow a month before Durbin elaborately announced he was going to write him. Wyden wanted a full list of every gift, well, bribe, well, gift, uh, brift. He wanted a list of every brift Harlan Crow ever gave Clarence Thomas and the accompanying tax records. And Crow's lawyer wrote back saying Senate Finance had no jurisdiction, so Wyden just hit Crow's lawyer in the face with the first punch. Metaphorically, of course, wrote him back. The lawyers, quotes, assertions are without merit, Senator Wyden wrote. A cursory review of the committee's activities demonstrates longstanding oversight and legislative interests in gift and estate tax laws. It goes without saying, but Mr. Crow is not a branch of government. My hope is that with the issue of committee jurisdiction settled, Mr. Crow provides answers to the questions I've put before him a second time, unquote. Oh, and then, surprise, Ron Wyden also throws the second punch. Quote, I realize the committee may need to follow another route to compel his answers, and I'm prepared to make that happen. Oh, and he's down. Arlen Crow's lawyer is down. The count is five, five, four, three. To Arlen Crow's lawyer is beaten in one round. the first punch. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Still ahead on Countdown, just to get away from politics and Fox Quote News and CNN for two minutes. The day I fell off a cliff shooting a commercial and things I promise not to tell. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help. Every dog has its day. Two weeks ago, I told you about Venom an unfortunately named pity puppy who faced death here in New York, even though he's great with kids. He plays with other dogs. He lets you rub his cheeks. What do I find out yesterday? But he's not only been saved, but he's being fostered by one of my old dog sitters. She has changed his name from Venom to Venice. And she says, quote, he's a huge angel. He also has a growth they have to remove. They believe it's benign, but it has to go. And she and happy-go-lucky Mastiff Rescue are trying to raise funds for the operation. If you can help Venice, you can find him at happygoluckymastiffrescue.com or on my Twitter feeds. Any donation will be gratefully accepted. I thank you, and Venice thanks you. There's an ad agency in Santa Monica. They just called me. Would you like to do two commercials for Boston Market? I answered with profound indifference. Okay, would you like to do two commercials for Boston Market for $250,000? I believe my next words were, well, I can't do them today, but sure. They faxed me the scripts. They're actually pretty funny. Very well done. I think you'll like them. I believe my next next words were, if I don't have to kill anybody in them, call them back and say yes and get the money. Since the idea was these ads would run on sports telecasts, most of them on ESPN, my yes got back to management at ESPN pretty quickly. You can't do these, one of the executives explained dismissively. We don't let anybody do commercials. I laughed. Every one of us has done the, uh, the This Is Sports Center commercials. Some of us have written the This Is Sports Center commercials. You don't even give us days off for making them, let alone give us money. This is money I don't have to ask you for. The executive shook his head. Those aren't commercials. Those are promotional announcements. They're in your contract. Nobody here does commercials. I said, Chris Berman has done a beer commercial 
in three out of the last five Super Bowls. My commercial is just for food. Well, he's Berman. I pointed out I went to high school with him. And I was the star of their most popular program, a little thing called Sports Center. TV Guide had just named us one of the top ten shows on TV. Shows, not sports shows. Us and Seinfeld. Sorry. Well, now I got a little angry, which never happened to me at ESPN, and I went to my ace in the hole. Uh, my contract expires in like ten months, and you know I intend to leave. And during those ten months, you're going to pay me about two hundred and sixty thousand dollars. So Boston Market is going to pay me two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for two days' work instead of ten months' work. Plus, they're going to take me out first class to L.A. for a couple of days. And they're probably going to do some radio spots, and I'll make another twenty-five grand. So you're giving me a choice: make say two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars in like five days for them, or make two hundred and sixty thousand dollars here between now and next September when I'm planning on leaving anyway. If you make me choose between those two, which do you expect me to choose? The executive coughed. We'll get back to you. An hour later, he got back to me by phone. Okay, we see your point, but there are still two problems. We can't just let everybody do commercials. I said, well, you know, why don't you just let anybody who went to the high school that Berman and I went to do commercials? He did not laugh at that. Well, how about only your regular weekday sports center anchors get to do commercials? There was a grunt and a maybe. Then we got to the gist of the real problem. Here's the real problem. People on your show... They'll be resentful. And I said, why would they be resentful? Because the production assistants are expecting that they're going to get their own commercials too? And I said, how about this? The day I'm out there actually shooting the commercial, I will get Boston Market to like cater dinner for the show staff, even if I have to pay for it myself. There was a long silence. Would management be included in that? And can we get all the side dishes too? I swear to God. So, off I flew at the beginning of December, during a winter that had gone frigid in October in Bristol, Connecticut. The next thing I knew, I was on the beach in Malibu at Leo Carrillo State Park. The crew is complaining because it is raining lightly and only about 55 degrees. To me, fresh from the hinterlands, and having not been back to L.A. since I had moved out in 1992, it's like I'm in Tahiti. And my agent was right. The scripts were funny and original. They were a send-up of the old Calvin Klein obsession perfume commercials. They're two extremely thin models, and they are filmed writhing in frustration on the beach, on the big rock outcroppings at Leo Carrillo State Park. She is supposed to say, emptiness. How can I fill this empty void of emptiness? They are in black and white. But I emerge from behind a rock or wherever. I'm in color. They are in black and white. And I say, when they say they don't know what to do about this emptiness, I say, eat something. I then sell the sandwich. Then it cuts to a shot of me walking them down the beach with my arm over each of their shoulders, telling them eating is a good thing. And who's wearing cologne or who likes sports or other stupid things like that for a quarter of a million dollars. Well, we start this at 8 a.m., and the producer and the director, John, say to me and the two models and the crew, look, this rain is just going to get heavier as the day goes on. So what we want to do is not take a break for lunch. We'll just shoot until, like, 2 p.m., and then you can have lunch or you can take your lunch with you, and you'll all get paid for a full day. And everybody agrees. 
The actress agrees, and she swears as she agrees. The actress is named Una. Una is from Chicago, and it will soon prove Una swears more than a longshoreman. This blanking cold can blank my blanking blank. To be fair, Una and the guy are dressed in Calvin Klein rags, and they are there, and they are from there, and they are freezing, while I am wearing a production company brand new suit and shoes, and to me it feels like it's Tahiti. We take a couple of hours where we do all the shots where I emerge from behind the rocks or go around the rocks or over the rocks or I look over the rocks. And the director finally says, okay, we got five good options. Let's set up for the walk down the beach with your arms around each other's shoulders. By now, it's noon or 1230. And as they move the cameras and the rain starts to move from a mist to like a light rain, two prop guys bring out rakes. And I'm sitting with the crew and I've been asking them questions all morning in between takes about how this is all being arranged and made and lit. And I say, rakes, what do you need rakes for in a commercial? And they say, you'll see. And then each time me and Una and the guy walk down the beach and the director says, cut, we go back to the starting point. Now out come two stagehands with rakes and they rake the sand on the beach smooth. And I say, oh, footprints. So each time I walk down this damp beach with the rain just a little harder than it was the take before in my brand new dress shoes, what I'm basically doing is polishing the soles of these brand new shoes on damp sand. I mean, by the time the director John says we are done, these soles of these shoes are so shiny, I could go ice skating in these shoes. And John comes over and he says, listen, we got another half an hour. Can we go back and try a new way for you to appear on the rocks? I mean, can you can you climb rocks at all? And I say, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm surprisingly good at it. You wouldn't think so, but I can climb rocks. And he points to one rock outcropping on the beach. Maybe it's 18, 20 feet high. And he says, try to climb up that and go as high as you can. If there's nothing that'll support you, we'll forget it. And I try, and sure enough, I get up near the top, and there is a perfect little shelf in the rock that I can comfortably stand on. And the director points the camera up, and he says, oh, damn, the angle's too tough. I can't swing the camera down fast enough for when you say eat something so I can refocus on the models. It won't work. Is there anything lower on the rock where you could stand? Can you come down at all? And I said, I think so. I think I can come down a little bit. Well, little did I know. Sure enough, maybe nine, ten feet from the beach, up in the sky, there is another little foothold on this rock outcropping. It is not big enough for me to put both my feet on it, but I say, if you don't mind me holding on to the rock as I say eat something, I can do it from here. And the director says, okay, let's try it. And I climb down the rock, and he's moving the camera, and I put my left foot on this flat part, which is nine or ten feet up from the beach, and for a couple of seconds, everything is fine. I'm good. And that's when I feel that my left shoe, my brand new left shoe, straight from the Floorsheim catalog, bright and shiny, and now having been polished by four hours of walking up and down on a wet beach, complete with two guys there to rake the beach and make sure it is as shiny as it possibly can be, my left shoe, slipperier than a diamond, is now moving of its own accord. I'm holding. I'm doing a good rock climbing job, but the shoe, the shoe is not holding. Hey, 
I say with some alarm. I'm about to fall off. I hit the sand no more than five seconds later. So that's about a 16-foot drop from my head to the beach. And for weeks, for years, still to this day, it has amazed me more than anything else that happened. It has amazed me how much went through my mind before I crashed. In fact, before I actually fell. I know I did a quick height calculation. Yeah, 15, 16 feet. I recognized that the outcropping was so vertical that I was unlikely to hit any of the rock on the way down. But just the same, I remembered that the rocks continued under the sand, see? I took two years of geology. And this was going to be a hard landing. More amazingly than all that, though, I had taken judo as a kid. I hated every minute of judo. 1965, 1966, so 26 and 27 years before we shot this commercial. I was in the studio, the judo studio in White Plains, New York, the day of the 1965 Northeast Blackout. And the only happy memory of the entire judo experience I had was when our instructor, Bob DeRocher, locked us in the dojo that had been converted from a store that had a front door that was set in several feet from the street so they could put display cases up. And now it's pitch black, so he went out and got his Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, drove it up over the sidewalk into that set-in entryway of this converted storefront. He put his high beams on. He flooded the dojo with enough light that we kids could change out of our judo stuff and back into our regular clothes and wait for our parents to come get us. He did a great job. I didn't like the judo so much, but his blackout operations practice was superb. So now, with all of this having gone through my head in a second, I began to fall, and everything else from that year of once-a-week judo classes comes back to me. Relax as you drop. The more of your body that hits, the less you'll get hurt. Hands protect the head. Drop like a sack of sand. I did not hit the sand, per se. I kind of splattered on my left side. Swap. As I rolled over onto my back and took a breath and sat up, of all people, Una was the first to race over to me. You want some blank and tea? I said, uh, no, no thanks. Let me, let me see if I'm dead. The grips tried to help me to my feet, but I felt some very sharp pain that which suggested we should slow down. The problem was, though, even if I needed an ambulance, there was no way to get one down to where we were shooting. As that rock outcropping that I had just fallen from suggested, I like to call it a cliff every now and again, Leo Carrillo State Park had a real cliff in it and a flight of stairs. I mean, 100 steps, 200 steps up to Pacific Coast Highway and a park. Sure enough, I was able to stand, but I couldn't move easily. Everything hurt. So the two biggest members of the crew let me drape my arms over their shoulders exactly the way I had draped my arms over their shoulders of the models during the beach shot. I stopped for a second. Hey, Ona, you sure you don't want to Franken-carry me up the stairs? She said with genuine sincerity, Now that's blank and funny. Seemed to me like it took about a month to get up those stairs. I assumed there would be an ambulance waiting by this point. Instead, there was a park ranger. This is a state park. I have to see you first. Then I have to call the fire department. 
I said, well, this pain on my side here, this feels like fire, but I don't think it's actually fire. He called the fire department. They showed up. They assessed me. They called the ambulance. At some point, probably when I was being half dragged up the steps, something happened on the impact side. If I now tried to lower my left arm from way above my head, I got severe shooting, burning pain from my left armpit to about my left knee. Cleverly, I figured out not to do that. Keep your left arm above your head and it won't hurt. I used the restroom in the ranger station. There was no blood, so no kidney damage. I'm okay. It does, however, hurt, and something could be broken. Now I go back outside, my arm above my head, like I'm signaling for a cab on the streets of New York City, and the ambulance shows up, and the EMTs tell me to get on their gurney, and I said, I I can't. I can't lower my arm unless I want excruciating pain. I can't move my arm. I have to stay in this position looking like, like a flamenco dancer. But I said, listen, can you lock the wheels on this gurney? And they said, sure we can. Of course we can. And I said, just lock the wheels and I'll just back up onto the end of it and I'll fall backwards. And it worked. And so with my left arm still extended over my head, they loaded me into the ambulance. Apparently when I fell from that rock or cliff, as I call it, it looked like I had been shot. 50, 60 people on a commercial crew. The shooting day is over. They have missed lunch. There is a very nice catered lunch sitting there. And they told me later that everybody was so disturbed by what happened to me that only three people even took something to go. And no, the director was not filming as I fell, sadly. So we hit every pothole on Pacific Coast Highway on the trip from the beach to the hospital. Oh, ah, oh. I called my agent from my cell phone. She laughed. I called ESPN, actually to check on the catered dinner. Oh, what's new? Oh, I fell off a cliff shooting the commercial. They laughed. And I'm lying there in the emergency room waiting for x-rays when my cell phone rings again. And I reach into my left pocket, and I had the phone halfway to my ear when I realized my left side does not hurt anymore. At all. It does not hurt at all. Well, that was a quick recovery. I sat up. My left side felt fine. In fact, it felt great. And a nurse came over and suggested I should lie back down again. I said, why? Somehow I got better on the trip from all the potholes and just lying here. In fact, I feel great. Did you guys remove my left leg while I wasn't looking? Did you replace it with the left leg that I had when I was 12? Because I could hop back to Connecticut on my left leg right now, just cancel the flight. She laughed. She said, no. What I was feeling would be the morphine they gave me so they could twist me around and take the x-rays they needed. And I said, please never, ever give me any more of that ever again. Thank you. My judo flashback, as it turned out, had done the job. I had broken nothing. The ER doctor complimented me on my fall, and he said I probably had six or eight different sprains on my left side. It would hurt, but it would keep getting better and I'd be able to make my flight home the day after next. He was completely right, although I now found uh, 25 years later that it's beginning to hurt like I just fell off the cliff. Anyway, I went back to the hotel. I ate well. I slept well. I managed to walk around with the help of a cane, and I went back for day two of the commercial shoot. This one is in a mansion in Pasadena, a room teeming full of unas lying on the floor, They're photographed through chandeliers. They're lazy, rich kids who also need to be told to eat something. 
I arrived and walked into applause from the crew, and I delivered a well-rehearsed line. And now for my next trick, which is when the director, John, came over and apologized, and he said he thought this entry into shot for me would be way easier. What I had to do was lie on the floor, then sit up and deliver the line, eat something. If you can sit up, he said, that is. If, if you can't, we, we can do something else. Can you sit up? And I thought about it, and I rubbed my lower back, and I said, based on the day so far, yeah, I could, but probably only six or seven times. And and I, I said, while well, I, I can sit up, it's clear to me one of those bad sprains was in the muscles somewhere of my lower back, and if I try to lay back down, I lose control. I'll just crash back to the floor. That actually happened getting out of bed this morning. So after each take... The same two guys who had walked me up the stairs after I fell at the beach gently held my arms and shoulders and lowered me back to lying on the floor. We got what we needed. I went back to the hotel. I had dinner with some friends. The next day I was a little sore, but perfectly fine to get back on the plane east. And sure enough, only time ever I had a west to east tailwind. The flight from LAX to Newark took three hours and 48 minutes. We traverse the country like a dart shot from a gun or an Olbermann falling from a rock outcropping. Oh, by the way, the commercial was an immediate success, unlike any that Boston Market had ever done before. In those days, they were packed each night for dinner at every location, selling half chickens and full meals with potatoes and salads. And they were getting an average of $12 out of every customer. The rest of the day, the place was empty. The idea behind my commercials, they were designed to bring in a lunch crowd, a sandwich and a soda and a bag of chips for $4. Soon they were swamped at lunchtime. Boston Market ordered three more commercials, these to be shot in a studio in New York. They offered me 50 grand a day. An entire new career vista was opening in front of me. I was, for a week or two in early 1997, the most successful male commercial actor in the country. We shot those three spots. I interrupted a grunge concert to shout, eat something at the band, and then I got carried off by the crowd in a mosh pit. And I interrupted a Romeo soap opera surgeon coming on to his nurse by rising from the operating table to shout, eat something. And then we did something with ball players at the stadium on Randall's Island. And I remember nothing of that because unlike the first two, they never edited the film because that's when it happened. Their equivalent of falling off the cliff. I will confess it had not occurred to me. Then again, I did not own Boston Market. I did not work for their marketing department. I did not run the ad agency they employed. But none of them anticipated it either. After the first few weeks of giddy glee about the lunch crowds, I had brought them. Somebody noticed something unfortunate and unexpected. Basically, for every $4 lunch they were now selling, they were selling one fewer $12 dinner. They had not gained any new customers. They had just managed to get their customers to each spend $8 less. These very well-made, very memorable commercials worked very, very well. And the problem with that was each time they did work, it cost Boston Market $8. By the end of 1997, Boston Market was something like $900 million in debt. It had filed for bankruptcy and it had been taken over by McDonald's. On the other hand, 
I got my money. And in the 25 years plus since, Boston Market has not once used a celebrity endorser to try to sell their food. Oh, and there was one other positive outcome. I'm actually very proud of this. The ad agency got the award in question. I did not, so I don't know which group gave it to us. But that Eat Something campaign actually won an award because somehow my shouting Eat Something at Una and the other waif-thin models, somehow that cut through to at least some victims of eating disorders. The Boston Market Eat Something ad campaign for which I fell off a cliff. Okay, a rock outcropping for which I fell off a rock outcropping, got an award from a National Bulimia Association. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for your support. Last night, Countdown got its 9 millionth download since we started last year. Half of these have been since February. Thank you. Tell the others. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer was Kenny Mayne. Everything else is pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 863rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Do not forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and throw the first punch. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.